Hi, everybody, and welcome to the ninth and final session of this season of Dear Mr. Potter. I'm Alistair Stevens. Everything seems to be working perfectly. Let's get to it. Today, we are going to wrap up some outstanding correspondence, outstanding in both senses of the word. We're going to have a little live Q&A, but we're also, of course, going to discuss the movie adaptation. In particular, we're going to discuss some of the choices which the movie makes, which are successful. Perhaps surprisingly so. We're going to discuss some of the adaptive choices which work in favor of the story rather than simply replicating the book on the screen. We'll get to all of that in just a few moments. We have, of course, everyone here. Thank you all for joining me on this lovely Sunday afternoon. We have Kelly is here and Jordana is here and Laura is here and Emma is here for the first time. Welcome, Emma. We've got Sophia joining us from Norway. We've got Claire joining us from Scotland. This is going to be a really fun discussion. You guys, you can, of course, get in touch via the YouTube chat. You can just type your messages there. They will appear here in front of me. Or you can uh, get in touch with me on Twitter using the hashtag SWDMP Twitter. A little more reliable today than it was on Friday. This, I think, is why I'm feeling a little a little out of step, a little out of phase. It feels like just yesterday that I was sitting here discussing Harry Potter with you. And that's because it wasn't quite yesterday, but it was 36 hours ago. So uh, it's been a weekend of, of really crowded, uh, really crowded, packed Harry Potter goodness for me this weekend. Everyone seems to be here. Everything seems to be good. If you're having trouble with either the audio or the video, just try hitting refresh. That oftentimes, uh, that oftentimes fixes it. Great. And I should say, too, that you can also join me here today live in the Discord chat room. I think Discord is a little quiet on a Sunday afternoon, so I'm not sure that there's anyone in there right now. But if you are using the StoryWonk Discord chat room, if you are one of our generous and amazing uh, patrons, then you can have access to that, too. Oh, we're seeing some syncing issues. I do apologize, guys. I hope that the syncing issues repair themselves. Unfortunately, this is just the burden of... Uh, this is just the burden of live broadcast over the internet. Sometimes you get a good pipe to YouTube, and sometimes you don't. Um, we are, I should say, looking at alternate models for uh, our future seminars, for the uh, There and Back Again Tolkien seminar in particular. I think I'm going to try and get away from using YouTube, but I do want to keep the the accessibility that I've come to enjoy so much from YouTube. I want to make it accessible and open to as many people as possible who want to join us live. So there are a couple of different options that I'm looking into, and hopefully we'll have something in place uh, prior to January and the start of the Tolkien series. Do stay tuned if you're interested in, in maybe kicking the tires on a new on a new platform. Then uh, stay tuned to me on Twitter. That's at Paper Bullets on Twitter, and uh, maybe you guys can uh, maybe you guys can hang out there and and we can make it work. Oh, and everyone who's hanging out, um, <laughs> everyone who's hanging out in the Discord channel, it turns out, is also hanging out in the YouTube chat because you guys, though though special, are not elitist. Yes. <laughs> All right, let's get to it. Hopefully, everything here is going to. Uh... Oh, excellent. You just refresh the screen and it works and, and everything is good. I'm glad to hear it. Let's have some fun today and, uh, and see what we can make of this interesting and baffling movie. Last Tuesday, though, it feels like a lifetime ago, we live tweeted the movie and in my, my enthusiasm and optimism, I didn't really think about the time commitment that was involved. I am, as I'm sure you all know by now, the, the very worst kind of morning person. I love getting up in the morning and having coffee and being productive and making that happen. And that means that I kind of lose a little energy toward the end of the day. So when we sat down at 9 p.m. Eastern to begin live-tweeting the Chamber of Secrets movie, I hadn't really thought about just how long this film is. This is the longest of the Harry Potter movies, though I guess, in fairness, we should probably conflate 
Deathly Hallows 1 and 2 into one story. But if you're just watching individual movies, this is the longest. And that's despite the fact that The Chamber of Secrets is among the shorter books. The Chamber of Secrets is an 85,000-word novel that is adapted into an almost three-hour film. For contrast, Order of the Phoenix, which is the longest Harry Potter novel, is 257,000 words, or three and a half times longer than Chamber of Secrets. But that movie comes in at two hours and 20 minutes. So why is Chamber of Secrets so long? Why is it so unwieldy? Why does it seem to take forever to get started? And yet, in another sense, is is breathless throughout, is, is fragmented and, and rapid throughout. How are these two things compatible? Well, we see in Chamber of Secrets much the same thing that we saw in our discussion of The Philosopher's Stone, the first movie. It is simply an attempt to recreate the experience of the book on the screen. Every single major element of the book is recreated right there in front of us. I say every single. There are actually quite a number of, of elements, particularly narrative motivational elements, which are dropped out in the movie, but all the big set pieces are there. We get to see right there on the screen in front of us all the things that we've imagined as we read the book. That's what Chris Columbus did with the first movie. That's what he did with the second movie. And this is the last time that we're going to be having this discussion. This is the last time that that is going to be true. By the time we get to Prisoner of Azkaban, what we're seeing is a more mature and reflective process of adaptation. The Prisoner of Azkaban movie, while obviously still cleaving very close to the original book, makes more choices. It, it chooses a more difficult path. It is more creatively complete and comprehensive unto itself. It works as a story. But those two things... There's no moral judgment attached to either of those approaches. There is only a difference in primary value. If you go to the Prisoner of Azkaban book, for example, or really any of the subsequent books, and what you want is a literal representation of everything that happens in the pages of the book, then you're going to be a little disappointed. If you go to the Philosopher's Stone or Chamber of Secrets expecting a, a, a tight, focused, muscular kind of narrative, if you're expecting the story itself to be distilled down into something that can work in the... 90-minute, 120-minute frame of the standard, you know, movie, then you're going to be disappointed on that score, too. Here, we're trying to replicate not just the experience of reading the book, because actually the experience of watching the movie isn't terribly like the experience of reading the book. What we're trying to replicate is the shape of the thing, the form of the thing, the presentation of the thing. We want it to feel like Harry Potter, and we want it to be transportive. And if you grade the movie on those terms, then it is an unqualified success. It feels like Harry Potter. It looks like Harry Potter. If you go into it already knowing the story, if you're not looking for real depth in the motivation, if you're not looking for a really well-structured, you know, primary plot that carries you in three acts from the beginning to the end, but if instead what you're looking for is the book brought to life, then that's exactly what you'll get. And I see nothing wrong at all with that as a primary value. I see nothing wrong with that as as something which can be enjoyed. And I had a lot of discussions back when we were talking about The Philosopher's Stone, about the movie adaptation, and I said, this is a terrible adaptation. And in part, that's true because it's only barely an adaptation. Really, they've taken the book and they've used it as a script. They've used it at least as a storyboard. And a lot of people got in touch and said, but I love that movie. It's a fantastic movie. I watch it every Christmas with my kids. And those two things are not incompatible. We can recognize that these movies are weak pieces of adaptation, that they are themselves weak 
texts, but still enjoy them, still find them fulfilling, still find them engaging, still find them magical. We just have to understand that the movie is an accompanying text to the book rather than a text unto itself. And that's one of the reasons that I titled this uh, this last session in the second season of Dear Mr. Potter, Transformed Texts, because one of the ways in which we understand a story is by seeking to adapt it. If you want to make sure that you absolutely comprehend the, the minutia of a text, both both what's on the page, the, the literalism of the text, but also everything that, that lies beneath the surface. If you want to understand the underlying conflicts and motivations, the backstories, the histories, the way that the book deals with exposition, then try to adapt it. Because that that will show you the gaps in your knowledge pretty quickly. So, after the um, success of the first movie, I have the numbers here, in fact. Uh, yes, in 2001, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone made $975 million off a budget of $125 million, which is astonishing. It also ran for 152 minutes. In 2002, Chamber of Secrets made $879 million off a budget of $100 million. So it made a little less, but it also cost a little less, which... I think shows how much had already been established in the first movie, how much of the production was able to be rolled forward into Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. This movie is 161 minutes in its theatrical cut, which is already already far too long. And, and I want to be clear, that's not... I'm not taking a position here against long books or long movies or long stories in any form. I'm as much a fan of long, sprawling narratives as, as a person can be, it's simply, you know, an observation about the efficiency with which this story has been adapted. Yeah, good. Um, I'm catching up now with YouTube chat, trying to rearrange all these windows. I just posted, by the way, to Twitter, mere moments before we started this session, I posted a picture of what it looks like from my perspective as I'm recording one of these things. And as I'm looking at the picture, I'm thinking there has to be a better way of doing this. There has to be a more... Uh, a more functional way of doing this. Kate says on Twitter, My husband hates, loathes, despises, and abhors the Goblet of Fire movie because it's so adaptive. Goblet of Fire is, I think, pretty pretty commonly by consensus, the, the furthest swing in the other direction. If the pendulum here is too far on the side of, of transliteration, then certainly by the time we get to Goblet of Fire... There are, I think, too many adaptive choices made for the, the comfort and enjoyment of many dedicated Harry Potter fans. There are too many, too many changes. Too much is, is, is replaced in the Goblet of Fire movie. So I can understand that response entirely. Um, Elizabeth says they needed some sort of overseer to produce the movies and keep everything on track from film to film the way the MCU has someone. That's really interesting um, because... Of course, they they didn't, and we're going to see the tonal shift. The tonal shift between two and three is probably is probably as emphatic as that tonal shift gets. Though I would argue that there's a similar kind of tonal shift as we move into part one of the Deathly Hallows. Um, these movies are less consistent with one another than they might be. But of course, one of the things that makes the Marvel Cinematic Universe stand out is that this is the first time someone has tried to create this kind of shared universe, this kind of shared experience. And even within the experience of the MCU, there are wild tonal deviations. You know, it's really tough to look at something like Captain America Civil War on the one hand and Ant-Man on the other. And of course, Doctor Strange is coming out any day now, and I'm sure that that movie is going to push us in a new direction too. So you're absolutely right that a stronger hand at the tiller would have been helpful, 
But that would have been unprecedented back in 2001, 2002, as these movies were being produced. And honestly, it wouldn't have hurt the Harry Potter series if Chris Columbus had continued to work directing all of these movies, if they had all shared this similar aesthetic, if not tone, because I don't think you can tell the later stories in, in this tone. The tone of the series evolves, and thus the tone of the, the movie series would have had to evolve too. But I don't think that Chris Columbus would have done a terrible job. There's no way that these movies would have stopped being successful, either financially successful or honestly critically successful. I think Chris Columbus could have done it. He didn't come back for the third movie because he says the, the, the line is that I haven't had uh, dinner with my children on a weeknight for two years because he'd been working on these movies. Though, of course, he does produce the third movie, though I'm hard pushed to find his fingerprints in that production at all. But let's not talk about the third movie. Let's keep talking about, for now, the second movie. So we do make some cuts. We do lose some material because... Even for a three-hour movie, you have to make compromises. You have to cut hard, which is one of the reasons why the movie can feel so very fragmented. It can feel so breathless. In order to include as much as we manage to include, we're, we're forced to keep moving forward at an incredible pace. Go watch the first, I'd say maybe 15, maybe 20 minutes of this movie. Go watch everything that takes us up to the Whomping Willow, in effect, and look at how how paired to the bone those scenes are. There's barely a moment to catch your breath, because as soon as we're done with one thing, we're on to the next. As soon as we've fulfilled the obligation of the scene, oh, well, we've included all of the, the dialogue that we wanted to include, hard cut as fast as you can, get us into the next scene. We cut early at the end of scenes, and we cut late at the beginning of scenes. We managed to compress so much into this movie. In the hands of another director, in the hands of another directorial style, even the almost three-hour cut of this movie would run for five hours because there's just so much material there. I'm not sure I could have made it through five hours of Chamber of Secrets, I've got to be honest. Um, so in the name of, of maintaining this pace and including as much material as possible, we do lose a lot of exposition. We lose all of the initial exposition connecting the journal to the opening of the Chamber of Secrets 50 years ago. All of that is gone. All the exposition about Filch being a squib and thus being a potential target for the monster, that's gone too. Uh, the motivation for Harry's detention with Lockhart, pretty much gone completely. The entire Percy and Penelope subplot is excised. Penelope doesn't even make the final cut of the movie except that she appears in... Now, I want to say three three or four crowd scenes. There is a character, Penelope Clearwater, in those scenes, but she doesn't get a line of dialogue, she doesn't get a presence in the movie, and of course, most notably, she isn't petrified by the basilisk. Most importantly, though, though you know I'm a fan of the Percy subplot and it, it saddens me to see it go, most importantly, almost all of the foreshadowing about Ginny's involvement with the Chamber of Secrets is cut. We get almost no sense there is perhaps one shot, arguably, which serves that purpose. One shot that makes us concerned about Jenny in the abstract, rather than connecting her directly to the Chamber of Secrets. But most of the exposition is cut, and in a couple of spots that actually creates a problem. Let me show you. I've got a handful of uh, I've got a handful of demonstrative slides taken from the movie, just so you don't have to look at me for the next couple of hours. But uh, this is the first slide that I pulled because this is Ginny giving the stink eye to Harry immediately after the dueling club scene in which it's revealed that Harry can talk to snakes. Now, in this scene, Harry is in the library 
Apparently, every child in Hogwarts is gathered there, too. He's looking around. Ron doesn't know what to say. Hermione doesn't know what to say. He's feeling judged. He's feeling paranoid. He looks around. He sees the Hufflepuff kids talking. He looks over, and there is Ginny giving him this look. And we can interpret this look in a number of different ways, I'm sure, but this is the look that she's giving him. Unfortunately, Harry then leaves the library turns a corner and walks right into the petrified bodies of Justin and nearly headless Nick. So I don't know what we're supposed to make of the fact that Ginny is in the library at that point. Though that is, I've got to tell you, just a just a great expression on her face. Mm. Yeah, we're getting some comments here in the YouTube chat about the number of, of characters that are lost. And Melissa says, I hate when adaptations mean that the depth is lost. And that's a really interesting point because depth is a really difficult thing to communicate. Let me cancel that slide. It's a really difficult thing to to pin down. Do we find depth in Harry Potter because of the the cast of thousands? Do we find the depth in Harry Potter because of the complexity of the dialogue, the complexity of the conflicts, the complexity of the backstory, the way that exposition is presented to us? Is it simply a pacing issue? And this, I think, is is arguably the most legitimate complaint about about Chamber of Secrets, is that the pacing is shot. Because it is so frantic, because we inhabit these, these scenes for such a brief flicker of time and then move on to the next thing, no one in the movie and the audience is allowed to sit with these, these plot points. We're not allowed to, to wallow in the sense of oppression, in the sense of threat, in the sense of palpable danger. We're not allowed to connect with Harry. We're not allowed to understand how difficult it is for him to be exiled, in effect, from his community. Instead, we get, in the extended cut, a really genuinely terrible scene of Harry sitting on a cliffside with Hogwarts in the background, talking to his owl. What am I? Who am I? That's a terrible scene, and it serves to replace a lot of character development that we get from Harry in the course of the book. Harry, his, his profound discomfort at the thought of being the heir of Slytherin is all but gone. We get the high points, of course. We get him talking to the sorting hat. But we don't get that, that, that sense of internal change. We don't get him confronting his own identity and his own personality. And that is a real problem. So I'm with you. I think that, that trying to preserve the spirit of the piece is the greatest challenge that awaits anyone who is seeking to adapt texts. And of course, we're going to have this discussion at great length when we're talking about the work that Peter Jackson did with the Lord of the Rings movies, and then much less successfully with the Hobbit movies. Yeah. Oh, we're discussing Ginny in the YouTube chat. <laughs> yeah, I am still, I am still, still, still Team Ginny. More much more for the book than the movie. Though, I've got to say, actually, the performance, and we're going to talk about, about Ginny's uh, finest moment in, in just a few minutes here, but what I want to do, as I said, is focus on some of the, the adaptive choices that were made that really work, some of the choices that really serve the story here, because there are a handful. So let's get into those. The first of those, I can advance to the next slide and then share it all with you. The first adaptive choice that I really love in this movie comes after Draco insults Hermione, calling her a mudblood. In Hagrid's hut, it's Hermione who explains to Harry, and thus to the audience, what that word means 
rather than Ron. And this, this has a really powerful effect. As, as I discussed fleetingly in the live tweet on Tuesday, I absolutely love this change because it means that Hermione is aware of the word. It means that Hermione has been called the word before. Now, we do lose something here. That's going to be true anytime you make an adaptive choice. You're going to lose something from the original text, but you're hoping that the thing that you replace it with is more valuable. Here we get a much stronger insight into Hermione's character. And this, in a very powerful sense, is the first moment of vulnerability that we've seen from Hermione so far in movie Hermione, in, in her personal timeline, I should say. This is a point of real vulnerability. She's really genuinely hurt by this. And I think that it doesn't hurt either that we really give Emma Watson a chance to do something very different. We give her a chance to just act the hell out of this scene. But the cost of that, the price that we pay for that is that, well, Ron basically says two words in the scene. He doesn't get a chance to speak up in the defense of Hermione specifically or Mudbloods in general. We lose something from Ron here. Now, that's absolutely true. He loses actual knowledge, though... It's not clear that he doesn't know what mudblood means, it's just that he's not the one who says it. But more importantly, we lose a moment of heroism from Ron, and I do think that there's a legitimate complaint about the film that Ron is relegated almost exclusively to comic relief. That his value in our power trio is, is, is pretty much removed, pretty categorically removed. Now, of course, part of his role in our power trio is to balance Harry's interiority. He is there so that he can pull Harry out of himself, and if Harry isn't terribly into himself, if Harry isn't brooding about being the heir of Slytherin, then Ron's role in that regard is less necessary. I would rather have both of those roles exaggerated. I would rather I would rather see more of both of those elements personally. But in this moment, while I do understand that it that it it diminishes Ron somewhat, I actually kind of love what it does for Hermione. Because we do get to see some good moments from Ron, but yeah, yeah. Oh, let me see. The uh, oh, We're picking up a... Uh, yes, yes, the cat's corner says Hermione gains and Ron loses. Yes. Hermione is too perfect, loses a lot of her flaws and vulnerability. Yeah, it's absolutely fair to say, I think. Let me uh, cancel that slide. It's absolutely fair to say, I think, that, um, that one of the consequences of this kind of rapid-fire adaptation, trying to cram as much of the necessary points, as much of the dialogue, effectively, into the movie as possible, something happens to all of the characters. All of the characters become flattened. This is one of the revelations, I think. Um, <laughs> I've seen so many people talk about Snape. I've seen so many people talk about kind of coming to the books originally and then having their vision of of Snape overcome by Alan Rickman's portrayal of Snape, and then, after years in some circumstances, going back to the books and simply finding so much more in there. Now, that absolutely is not Alan Rickman's fault. Snape is one of the characters, as most of the characters are, who is diminished by the adaptational process. That's true of Harry, it's true of Ron, it's true of Hermione. I'm grateful for this one particular moment because I think that it gives Harry, it gives Hermione something that she genuinely hadn't had before, which is, which is a sense of that vulnerability. She is hurt by this. And this is something which is is essential to her personality. This isn't something that's that's external. She's not in danger. Exactly. I mean, she is ultimately in danger because she is Muggle-born. But this, this hurts her. 
and that's really powerful and i think and i think necessary yeah yeah yes yes you know i hate bringing up alan rickman too it's 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 unfortunate here we are what 15 years out from this movie and we have to acknowledge not just the passing of alan rickman of course but the passing of richard harris we've got to talk about the fact that dumbledore is about to undergo a a very powerful a very powerful change of characterization here yeah okay so let's move on to um to the next not all of the uh, examples that i've pulled out are quite that powerful the next is very simply crab and goyle and very specifically here, I, I do want to pause just for a second to to give credit to Jamie Waylett, who played Crab, and Josh Herdman, who played Goyle, because they're so often overlooked. And what they managed to do through this sequence in particular is just fantastic. One of the changes, though, from the book to the movie is that when Harry and Ron drink the polyjuice potion, their voices in the movie do not change. Now, this is, of course, a, a flag for the audience, particularly for the younger members of the audience, that though... These guys don't look like Harry and Ron. They are still Harry and Ron. I can understand that. I basically never like it when a character is transformed but keeps his or her original voice. That that pretty consistently makes me crazy because the voice is a product of, you know, a biological mechanism. It's not as though you can you can be completely transformed in your outward appearance but still sound the same. That's not how voices work. In this instance, I understand the change, and I think the change is a good one. Although, as I say, this is pretty consistently something that makes me crazy. And the reason that I think it works here is that we get to see Harry and Ron put under greater pressure. It's almost too easy, if you read the passage in the book, for them to talk with Draco. We have to have a lot of informed interiority, and we have to have Ron basically incapable of 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 keeping his temper ron is so completely challenged and insulted repeatedly by draco malfoy that he's he's bawling his fists and he's pulling faces and he's getting ready to go and that doesn't serve ron's character at all here we get a different approach it's a more comedic approach which i think actually serves it rather well it's it's a minor adaptational choice but it's one that i am i'm glad to have yeah and and Emma is is calling out here in the YouTube chat. Yes, we are about to run into a major consistency problem with Barty Crouch. Absolutely. That's that's absolutely fair. The one kind of loophole for that, I think, is that um is that our young wizards perhaps brewed the polyjuice potion imperfectly. That may be perhaps the polyjuice potion is actually supposed to replicate voices too. Here, in this instance, it didn't. Perhaps they are given more of a glamour. Perhaps they appear to be more than Crab and Goyle than actually transform into Crab and Goyle. That is a possibility, but you're right. There is a, there is a wild inconsistency later. Yes. Good. Let's uh, move on to the next one here. And this is our flashback to 50 years ago, to the previous opening of the Chamber of Secrets. Not necessarily the first opening of the Chamber of Secrets, but the previous opening of the Chamber of Secrets. In the book, Tom talks with Professor Dippet, the then headmaster of Hogwarts, but in the movie we get this beautifully noir take on, on young Albus Dumbledore, younger Albus Dumbledore, and I not only love how this looks, it's a clear reference to 
movies of the 1950s, so we're not just replicating the style of, of you know, a, a traditional flashback style, a traditional, you know, visual indicator that this happened many years ago. We're actually leaning into the idea of cinema history itself, which I think works really quite well. Unfortunately, this makes that weird strip of light across Lucius Malfoy's eyes at the end of the movie all the more distracting and weird and nonsensical. I don't know why you would make that reference at all. I certainly don't know why you would make that reference in a movie that already includes this sequence. All harsh light, all chiascuro and, and Dutch angles. It's, it's really beautifully done. But much more importantly, it forges a connection between Tom and Dumbledore, which of course mirrors the relationship between Harry and Dumbledore. I love what this does to our relationships, to our primary relationships here between both Harry and Dumbledore and Harry versus Tom in this weird antagonistic doppelganger style relationship. So I think that's a very strong adaptive choice too. Let's push on to the next. And to the Ford Anglia in the Forbidden Forest. In the book, Harry and Ron run into the car in the Forbidden Forest before they are captured and taken to the Acromantula nest. This foreshadows the rescue, which is a, a choice, that, that is a strong choice. But arguably, I think it's more effective in the film where we get no glimpse of the Anglia after it escapes the Whomping Willow until it rescues Harry and Ron from the spider attack. And when I say in the film, what I mean is in the theatrical cut. This is changed in the extended cut of the movie where the pre-Aragog scene is included, including the line that we discussed as we read this chapter of the book, Ron's awesome line, I think the forest has turned it wild. But in the theatrical cut, we don't get the glimpse of the car prior to it bursting through the forest to rescue Harry and Ron and Fang. While the escape sequence is is excessive, is, is too hyperbolic, um, for my taste, <laughs> I do really like the, the appearance of the car, you know, it feels like one of these details that has been lost in the shuffle. It feels as though its disappearance after the Whomping Willow is, is played as a joke, but then to bring it back around here works very effectively and works, as we've discussed when we were discussing these chapters in the book, in all the right ways. It works as a fairy tale rescue and it speaks to these interesting subjects of self-awareness and of, of sentience. We're going to circle back around to that. Um, we're going to circle back around to that later in this discussion. Kate says, this is with regard, I didn't pull a slide of this because frankly, it pains me. Lucius's lighting across the eyes is, is coming from reflected light off the sword of Gryffindor, which Harry is holding. That's, I mean, that's the conceit, certainly. Um, and I'm not saying that, that you couldn't have done something interesting with that, but it looks very much like it looks very much the way that that everyone was shot in the 1950s and early 1960s. It looks like every, you know, my particular go-to reference, my personal go-to reference is every uh, woman that, that Captain Kirk made out with on the original Star Trek. They all had that soft focus and light across the eyes. It's all so very dramatic, but that is, is an aesthetic choice that doesn't really work um, for me, I have to say. Let's push on to what is, I think, by far by far the most successful piece of adaptation. This is Fox and the diary, the final climax here, because though the climactic battle between Harry and the Basilisk, I think for me, goes on far too long, as well as being, I think, a little tonally inconsistent with, with the rest of the movie, it, it lands in a really great adaptive choice. In the book... 
Fox heals Harry of the basilisk venom. Tom Riddle then taunts him and says, well, I'll still destroy you. Everything will be fine. And then Harry destroys the diary, which allows Ginny to wake. So Harry is already healed when he destroys the diary. In the movie, Harry destroys the diary first which allows Ginny to wake up and see Harry as he's about to die. He tells her that she has to get herself out of the chamber and back to Ron, and then Fox flies in and heals him. Now, this works for me for two primary reasons. The first is that it is simply less intrusive as a deus ex machina device. It's less forced. It feels... In the book, as though Fox is simply a counterpoint to the basilisk, which I think there is something interesting there. It's, it's imperfect in the book, but there is a way of reading the climax as Tom and his basilisk versus Harry and his phoenix. I think there is a way of looking at the climax in those terms. But that relegates Fox to, to a tool. It relegates him to, to a single-use object, you know? Harry is afflicted with the basilisk venom, Fox flies in, heals him, and then we move on to the next phase of the battle, which includes Fox dropping the diary into Harry's lap, literally delivering unto him the means of his salvation. And that's really shaky, particularly because Fox is so under-motivated in the story. So, so so under everything. I mean, he's he's under-motivated, he's under-explained, he's, he's, he's under-represented in a weird way. So none of that really works, and I think that in order to get to the good of the climax in the book, you have to whistle a little bit. But a little bit of, of structural surgery here in the movie gives us something far more powerful. One of my favorite scenes in the entire film follows the destruction of Tom Riddle. Harry takes the journal from Ginny and stabs it with the basilisk fang, killing, killing Riddle in this, really, um, in this really graphic way, tearing Riddle apart almost, creating fragments within the fragment and, until he's, he's disassociated to death, <laughs> effectively. And then we have this scene where Ginny wakes and realizes what she's done, tries to explain, sees Harry there, who is clearly in a great deal of pain, who is clearly on the verge of death, and Harry gets something that is surprisingly rare for Harry in the early books. He gets a moment of genuine, selfless heroism. Now, Harry does exceptional things all the time. Harry is a hero all the time, but oftentimes... It feels as though he's the hero because he's the nominated hero. He's the guy whose name is on the cover of the book, therefore he's the one who has to take action. And we've talked about this with regard to the core plots all the way back to the beginning of the Philosopher's Stone. Why is Harry investigating this? Well, because it says his name on the front. You know, it's, it's all about Harry and his experience, and everyone is going to clear a path for him because he is exceptional. But this is a moment in which Harry's actual character is tested. And not just his courage, that beloved Gryffindor trait, but his, his kindness, his selflessness, his generosity to others. His concern for Ginny does a great deal for me to elevate my opinion of Harry. I think this is a genuinely great moment and, and a very, very smart adaptive choice. Because when Fox flies in then and heals Harry... It's in response to Harry's act of self-sacrifice rather than as a simple counterpoint to the basilisk. It becomes much less convenient, much less mechanistic in its movement, and much more representative of the kind of thematic discussion that Harry Potter as a novel, as a series, encourages us to have. 
Harry makes a choice. He makes a choice to destroy the diary. He makes a choice to embrace, or I guess not embrace, but but not to to fight too, not to fight too strenuously against. If I can kind of you know fudge that sufficiently, um, he makes a choice with his last breath, effectively, to tell Ginny to get to safety. He cannot be saved. He doesn't say, run, get Ron, bring Ron back here, Ron will be able to help me. He says, go to Ron, get safe. And that's enormously powerful. And thus, it feels as though Fox's healing of Harry is deserved, and not simply a response to the basilisk. What do you guys make of that? Do you agree with that? <laughs> Nothing but a lie says, nominated hero. I agree. Yes. <laughs> oh, Jolie says, I hate that they killed Tom Riddle. Why is that? Oh, oh we're, 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 uh, yeah, we're nudging up against the, the discussion of the Horcrux here. And we have to remember that, um, <laughs> we have to remember that the discussion of the Horcrux can only take place from the privileged vantage point of, of much later in the series. We can't really meaningfully talk about the diary as a horcrux here because it clearly wasn't intended as a horcrux. We kind of backfill to that by the time we get to the explanation. But if the diary was intended from the first to be a horcrux, then the entire setup is, is baffling, not least of all because Tom Riddle would know that Basilisk Venom is the only thing that can destroy a Horcrux. So the last thing in the world he would do is have Ginny take the journal into the Chamber of Secrets, where, by the way, the world's only remaining Basilisk can be found. I guess not only remaining, but that's certainly how it feels. So we kind of have to, to skip out on that. It makes sense in terms of the destruction of a magical artifact, but it doesn't quite yet make sense in terms of the destruction of, of a Horcrux, yeah. Um... Oh, you just didn't, uh, Jolie says that she just didn't want Tom Riddle to die because he's such a great character. No, I absolutely agree. I think there's a real, uh, there's a real advantage to him being present in the series as a counterpoint to Harry, which I think is something that J.K. Rowling realized as she, as she moved forward. Yeah. Yeah. Good. All right. <laughs> you guys are all, again, so fast, so smart, so awesome here in the YouTube chat. I think I'm keeping up with everything, um... I think I'm keeping up with everything here. Excellent. All right, let's uh, let's push on. Oh, to to the last little uh, the last of these adaptational choices that I really love, which is much less significant, both in terms of of theme and in terms of plot, than the the shift here at the climax, and it is simply this: the handshake between Hermione and Ron right at the end of the story. So during the feast. We return to the Great Hall. Hermione runs in. Neville calls out, it's Hermione! And she gets this great run down the middle of, of the Great Hall. She then hugs Harry. She throws herself into Harry's arms and they hug and it's wonderful. Then she pauses and she shakes hands with Ron. And, and Ron is obviously kind of hesitant too. She is hesitant. It's this It's this wonderfully eloquent and rich piece of characterization. If you watch Ron... As Hermione enters the hall, he is every bit as pleased as Harry is. He is every bit as as thrilled to see her again. In the moment, though, he hesitates, and so does Hermione. Now, this may be read as distance in their relationship, but I don't buy that for a moment. I don't buy that in in 
in their performances. I don't buy it in the way that it's choreographed. I don't buy it in the way that it plays out at all. I don't buy it in the way that it's edited, ultimately. This, it seems clear to me, is the first suggestion that Ron and Hermione might like each other. And I just find that adorable. Now, there is a little history uh, supporting this adaptive choice. Apparently, Emma Watson was just very uncomfortable with the hugging. Apparently, she wasn't terribly happy about hugging Harry in the first place, or hugging Daniel Radcliffe, I should say. And this was this was the compromise solution that was found. And, you know, there are stories like that about every scene of every movie you've ever seen in your life. The fact that there is an incidental production detail behind a narrative choice doesn't invalidate the interpretation of that narrative choice. Is that why this scene played out the way that it did? Well, yes, maybe. By all accounts, that seems to be the case. Does that invalidate this this new perspective that we get on Hermione and Ron? Well, absolutely not. The text is the text. That's what we get to discuss. So for me, this is the first acknowledgement that there's more to Ron and Hermione's relationship than either one of them is, is admitting. And I just love it. I just love the way that it plays out. Yes, Emmy says here, I remember being annoyed about this because hints of them liking each other weren't in the second book, but it's cute. No, you're absolutely right. There's nothing in the second book that suggests that that's the case. And indeed, there is no reason as we're reading the first book, the second book, even into the third book, there's no reason to believe that Harry and Hermione are not going to end up together. She's the primary girl. His name's on the cover of the book. There's even like a, a pleasant alliteration there. But... That's not the direction that we go, though I know there are still, to this day, hordes of Harry Hermione shippers out there on, on the internet. I really love the way that this is played because it is so it is so emotionally complex and it is so 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 well presented. It just it's a moment that works for me. Yeah. Good. Yeah, it's it's not too uh yeah, it's not to suggest that there was, like, a conscious romance being kindled at this point, but yeah, it's more interpretive. Yeah. <laughs> Claire says, the handshake struck me as sweet. It's the sort of thing you get when awkwardness triumphs over feelings at that age. Claire, that is beautifully put. That is exactly what I'm trying to express. It is exactly the 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 momentary rush of awkwardness. This, this kind of, of hormonal tidal wave. It sweeps through and leaves devastation in its wake, and in this instance leaves a handshake, too, in its wake. So those are, I think, the most successful elements of, of the adaptive process here. Those are the elements that, that don't just work in and of themselves, that don't just elevate the text of the film, but also work in favor of the story. They make the story, <laughs> I hesitate to say better. Um, well, no, I will say better when it comes to Fox. I will say better in terms of the climax, in terms of the way that the battle with, with uh, Tom Riddle is structured. Yes, I think the movie version of that specific segment of the climax is better. I don't like the extended fight against the basilisk. I don't like the climbing of the statue. It's all very Alfred Hitchcock, and I get the reference, but it just doesn't, it just doesn't play for me. It just doesn't feel as, as grounded as I think this, this, should, this climax should feel. Um, but... The, moving Fox back in the narrative, I think, really does open up some some great conflict there. Um, so for me, that is definitively better than the book. The others, I don't think necessarily better than the book. I think that for everything you lose, you do gain something. I think that there is a price to be paid for the improved um, the improved characterization of Hermione. I think that Ron does lose out. I think that the the film does a terrible service to Ron, honestly. But. Uh, 
But that's pretty much where the movie leaves us. That's a short tour through the high points, as far as I'm concerned, at least. And we should, um, I know we talked about this a little on Tuesday night, and I mentioned it earlier in today's session too, but we should, of course, talk a little about uh, about Richard Harris. Richard Harris died, unfortunately, uh, a week before the world premiere of this movie. He will be replaced by Michael Gambon in the subsequent films. And... I know that there are a lot of people out there who have trouble with that transition, who, without taking anything away from Michael Gambon and what he does with the character, there are a lot of people out there for whom Richard Harris, this Dumbledore, will always be their Dumbledore. And I've got to tell you, I'm inclined to agree. Um, I think that... I think that it, it's difficult to blame gambon directly for this i think because there are of course so many things that are in play as we move into the next movie and the rest of the series there are so many changes that it would be impossible for for him to perfectly replicate harris's performance and nor should he perfectly replicate harris's performance he should do the job that he was hired to do and i think he does it beautifully i think gambon is a great actor but this dumbledore in this story works as well for me i think as as Dumbledore can possibly work. There's a real complexity to his performance here. Everything is shrouded behind five layers of meaning. That's always been, for me, the thing that Richard Harris can bring is, is an ambiguity. You're never sure. There's a radiant kind of sincerity, but there's also a depth. The thing that he's saying to you is true. And this is, of course, particularly true when we get to the the discursive, expositive scenes at the end of both movies. You know, these these paired scenes when Dumbledore reassures Harry that everything's going to be all right. There is a sincerity there that masks a deeper complexity. What he's saying is true, but there is always that sense that it isn't perhaps the whole picture. We're going to talk a lot more about Dumbledore, but I wanted to... Uh, I did want to talk about um, about uh, Harris's ability to to navigate the gravitas of of Dumbledore, but also the goofiness, also to to inhabit that that silly kind of kind of atonal space too, and manage to synthesize both of those and make them work. I think he does. I think he does terrific work. Yeah. All right. Good. Yes. Yes. It is, as 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 Wicked Woman here says in the YouTube chat, uh, I love Dumbledore version one, although 2.0 does a great job. It's a very different Dumbledore. That's exactly the thing. It's 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 really difficult to predict what Richard Harris would have done in the third movie had he lived. But unfortunately, we get two movies with him, with him really illuminating this role. And, and we're going to have a lot of fun dis- uh, discussing Dumbledore when we get to the third movie and, and tracking, because I guess by by... Tracking and charting the delta between book Dumbledore, which should remain broadly consistent, and movie Dumbledore, which is going to remain consistent with book Dumbledore, but different in terms of its performance and in terms of the tone of the movie. We we might be able to get to something interesting there. We might be able to see a little more clearly what it is that Gambon is doing in that role. So, yeah. Yes. <laughs> Dumbledore loves knitting, says Jordana. That is absolutely a true thing. The Dumbled- Oh, rule one. Zygmorphic says rule one. The Dumbledore lies. Yes. I could see Dumbledore. I could see Dumbledore as a Time Lord. I think that would work out rather beautifully. And rule two, the Dumbledore loves knitting. Yes. Good. And we're already looking ahead to Sirius Black in in the third movie. Yeah. No, there's a ton to love about that third movie. I'm talking about the third movie a lot more than 
than I, I probably ought, honestly, at this point. Um, but I have to be honest, you know, I, I, the Chamber of Secrets movie just doesn't do it for me. It just doesn't give me what I want from this story. I think there is a way of distilling the Chamber of Secrets story down, of making it much more powerful, but you're going to lose a lot of what makes Harry Potter Harry Potter in that process. You're going to be able to to distill it, and arguably this is what happens with Prisoner of Azkaban. This is certainly, I think, the argument is made that this is what happens with Goblet of Fire, that in the distillation process, too much is simply lost. And of course, the, the, the transformation of that story too. So let's leave the um, let's leave the movie behind us and move into instead some uh, some outstanding correspondence because I've received a number of emails, a number of, of forum messages, of tweets, of all kinds of things over the course of the last few weeks. And oftentimes, what I like to do is is pick a couple that maybe talk about the same topic, and I'll try and fold that into the discussion at the beginning of the next session so we can kind of keep this conversation going. But Sometimes that's impossible. Sometimes I just don't have the opportunity to to circle back to some of these topics. So I've got, um, let me see here, I've got maybe a half dozen different emails on different points, and I just wanted to to go through these and, and discuss them a little with you. This is going to be necessarily, I think, a little more chatty and a little more conversational than these uh, seminar sessions generally are. Um, Let's begin with uh, with Michael on Sentience. And I should say, too, if you have questions here in the YouTube chat, on Twitter, over on the Discord channel, then by all means... Uh, by all means, shout out, and I'll be glad to uh, to address any uh, any questions that you have. Let's get into Michael's email then. Michael wrote to me on the subject of sentience, and he writes, You posed the question about whether Mr. Weasley's car was sentient when it was magically altered, or if it was truly the forbidden forest that turned it wild. I think it's the latter. I believe that any magical object that has sentience can influence other objects, magical or not, to have sentience as well. Even up until the Chamber of Secrets, we have many examples of magical objects affecting other magical objects and people. The Sorcerer's Stone changing any metal into gold, the diary exuding its sentience to influence others. Later in the series, Horcruxes show us that sentient magical objects can affect the emotions of those around them. I don't think it's a huge leap to suggest that a sentient, ma- if sentient magical objects excuse me, can influence both people and other artifacts, then they could help turn a magical object sentient. And I find this really interesting because there is a sense in which, in which, in which magic may well be communicative in this sense. It may well be almost almost uh, contagious in this sense because when we think about about magical environments, whether we're thinking about Hogwarts or we're thinking about Diagon Alley or we're thinking about the Burrow, for example, places seem to be either magical or non-magical. There isn't really a sense in which there are kind of quasi-magical spaces. And one possible explanation for that, it seems to me, is this idea that magic begets magic. That that an object which exists in an in a in a magical atmosphere, which is itself suffused by magic, whatever that may mean, in an environmental sense, becomes magical itself. And that leads us down an interesting path because that would suggest that the kind of sentience that we see from from the car, for example, or the Whomping Willow, or any number of other artifacts through the course of the series, that that sentience is the fullest realization of magical energy, of magical potential. That if an object just becomes sufficiently magical, it will begin to develop a personality all its own. And that, of course, is a really interesting possibility for the portraiture in Hogwarts. Because while it is possible that all of these portraits were painted through the same 
process that that creates moving images in the world of Harry Potter that that leaves behind some impression or fragment of the soul of the subject in in the 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 art itself the same way that the moving photographs seem to exhibit more so in the book but certainly in the movie too um the same way that the moving photographs seem to exhibit some sense some fragment of the original subject there too it's possible that the portraiture was was created en masse using that same process, but it's also possible that these portraits have simply absorbed the magic of Hogwarts. And if that's true, that may allow us a path to a clear resolution regarding Hogwarts itself, because we've talked about Hogwarts more so in the first book than in the second, I have to say, but we have talked about Hogwarts as a as a sentient entity itself, as an entity which has an awareness not just of itself, but of the, the goings-on that occur within it. We've talked about the ways that, that the spaces within Hogwarts are, are fluid, are malleable, and that may be a consequence of Hogwarts itself achieving a kind of sentience a kind of see sentience is a troubling word because sentience has like very strict you know limiters placed upon it but awareness let's call it awareness let's call it personality let's call it you know the 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 sense that the object has a sense of itself and a sense of its place in the broader world that to me is fascinating and i think that that michael you make a really interesting point that that a sufficient concentration of magic may well lead to spontaneous eruptions of of sentience and awareness now the argument here then would be that the car achieves sentience while it is wrapped in the branches of the whomping willow i guess because while the car fleeing may simply be a a self-protective act the way that the car disgorges harry and ron's luggage in that moment suggests something something different there have been a few people who have said that that particular action suggests something parental that that is is where we can track the presence of arthur weasley in the car itself that's possible though we don't necessarily need to look to the forbidden forest if a sufficient amount of ambient magic can lead to this kind of personification because the car was worked on at the burrow and the burrow is a magical environment too so I think we can we can kind of adjust it. There is a sense, possibly, in which Ron is literally right when he says that the forest made it wild. There is a sense that that if the car began to possess some some semblance of personality, some semblance of sentience, some semblance of agency while it was at the burrow, an agency, a sentience that was manifested when it was smashed into the Whomping Willow and almost destroyed, there is a sense, possibly then, in which the ambient magic of the Forbidden Forest, which, as we've discussed, is more of a fairy tale kind of magic. It is it is an older and darker and more dangerous and certainly much less refined kind of magic could have continued to influence the car still further. That's possible. That's possible. And I find that a really fascinating discussion. So, Michael, thank you for that. Let me see. Uh, other blue girl here on the YouTube chat says there needs to be a bed and breakfast designed like the burrow. I couldn't agree more. That's such a genius idea. Is there no representation of the burrow in, in the wizarding world of Harry Potter in the various theme parks dotted around this fine land and, and elsewhere in the world? Because of all the places, I mean, Hogwarts is great, don't get me wrong, but of all the places in, in Harry Potter, the burrow is one of my favorites. Yeah. 
Kelly says the car must have developed more, though, because it didn't seek out the Weasleys or Ron. It seemed like it wanted to stay in the forest. Absolutely, yeah. That, that, though perhaps <laughs> sentience in this instance does not necessarily equate with a sense of servitude or a sense of obligation, um, perhaps the car was just waiting for a chance to escape. From, from the moment that it was, that it was, uh, from the moment that it gained whatever sentience it gained, yeah. Good. <laughs> oh, I love, we're, we're talking about, uh, we're talking about, uh, Emma says, I want a Harry Potter series with the Stranger, uh, a Harry Potter Netflix series, excuse me, with the Stranger Things kids. And we're talking about, Jordana suggests that the old cast could come back as older characters. Yes. Oh, that's a beautiful idea. Georgiana suggests Tom Felton to come back to, to play Lucius Malfoy, of course. If you weren't watching uh, The Flash on the CW right now, and this this comment may date very, very quickly. I'm, I'm up to date as of this recording, but I'm probably not going to stay up to date for long, and The Flash moves pretty quickly as a TV show. Tom Felton is appearing in this season of The Flash and is terrific. He is, he's just great. And Other Blue Girl suggests Emma Watson, of course, as McGonagall. I'd love to hear Emma Watson's Scottish accent. Yeah. All right, so that is the subject of of sentience. Oh, let me catch up here with Twitter, where um, yes, where Kate says Arthur's enchantment of the car would have layers. Keep Weasley safe, keep itself safe, flying invisibility. These things add up. Hmm. See, I wonder how much of that would be would be intentional. I mean, certainly there doesn't seem to be there doesn't seem to be any suggestion that Arthur Weasley tries to create, you know, a personality for this car, that he tries to to create an aware magical object. But, yes, I mean, if you are creating a magical vehicle, if you are, if you are supplementing muggle technology with magic, if you, are, if you are enchanting this thing in the name of convenience, for example, that's why the interior in the book is more spacious than the exterior would, would suggest, um... If you're going to do that kind of thing, then keep the occupants of the car safe would be a pretty powerful enchantment to lay upon this vehicle, right? That's that's something that you would imagine Arthur Weasley would be would have in his mind as he's enchanting the, this car. So it is possible, yeah, that this is a specific injunction that's placed upon the car through the manifestation of, of whatever enchantment uh, Arthur used. Yeah, that's a really interesting idea. I like that. I like that a lot. Good. Zygmorphic says, and I was just thinking about this too, does the car follow the Asimov, uh, Asimov's laws of robotics? Uh, preserve Weasley, obey Weasley, preserve self. Yes. Um, I guess ultimately it would have to also, if it's as self-aware as the robots ultimately turn out to be in, in the Asimov stories, then ultimately it would also have to to observe the zeroth law of of being Arthur Weasley's car, which is somehow protect all Weasleys beyond simply the Weasley which has created it. The Weasleys in the abstract, I guess, is, is what it would need to do. Yeah. Good. All right. Let's, uh, let's push on because I want to talk a little about Dark Wizards. This comes to us here. Oh, in fact, let's, let's skip past this one. We'll come, back to, we'll come back to these thoughts on Dark Wizards in just a moment because I think we can segue effortlessly. It would have been more effortless if I hadn't drawn attention to it. But I think we can segue away from the Ford Anglia to the question of Hogwarts itself. This came in from Lexi on the subject of, of this kind of, of mutability that we've observed 
In the past on Dear Mr. Potter, Lexi writes, you have spoken about Hogwarts seeming to be aware of the students that inhabit its walls. You've also discussed the Hogwarts houses and how in the first three or so books, they are not what they would eventually become. I've spent probably more time than I should analyzing the houses, and I've come to the conclusion that the houses move and change and adjust, just like Hogwarts does, depending on what the students need. Also, within the first few books, Slytherin is the bad house, and you said something, I said something, along the lines that, that Slytherin was the unloyal to friends house, which as a Slytherin I have a few objections to. Even within the first book, the Sorting House song says, or perhaps in Slytherin, you'll make your real friends, implying they are, there are strong friendships between the children in the house. They are not externally friendly, but they're not unloyal to their friends. Um, that is true. That is absolutely uh, That is absolutely true. I think that... I have a problem with the idea that a friendship between Slytherins is is straightforward or is is particularly compelling for each individual Slytherin student because, of course, alongside ambition, the defining characteristic of the Slytherin is ruthlessness, that they would sell out anyone in order to achieve their goals. And certainly we see little little evidence of actual camaraderie, actual warmth and friendship between the Slytherin kids. And again, I have to reiterate, you know, the version of House Slytherin that we get in book one, in book two, even moving into book three, that is not what Slytherin will ultimately become. So I think that when we consider ourselves to be Slytherin, when we consider ourselves to be Hufflepuff or Ravenclaw, we're looking at the later, more sophisticated versions of, of those houses. But the point in general... That not only is Hogwarts physically, geographically mutable, not only is it self-aware in that sense, but its institutions may be mutable. That's, that's really interesting. I think I'm more likely to ascribe the evolution of the house system at Hogwarts to Harry's changing perspective. That, that Harry, as, you know, an innocent young man in his, in his first year, in his second year, he sees the lines very clearly. He values courage and heroism. So, of course, the house of courage and heroism should be the good guys. And, of course, the house of, of ambition, the house that is connected with Voldemort explicitly, of course, they should be the bad guys. And, of course, the other two houses should be largely irrelevant. But as Harry matures, he begins to understand that perhaps courage and heroism are not the only virtues which a person might possess, are not the only virtues to which a person might aspire. And I think that as we, as we come through Harry's POV, as we come to a more complete understanding of the world that is replicated in the house structure, do the houses actually change? Well, you would imagine that if they did the, the faculty at least would be aware of it, that there would be some kind of, of reflexive awareness that, you know, Slytherin just isn't what it used to be. Or, or Hufflepuff, weren't they, weren't they cooler last year? Wasn't last year, didn't, didn't the Hufflepuff kids all, like, were they not fashionistas last year? Was that not a thing that happened? And that, as that evolves over time, we would, we would be aware of it moving forward. So I think that this is a function of Harry's perspective more so than, than Hogwarts itself. But... I do think that Hogwarts as an entity, to the degree that Hogwarts has awareness, I do think that Hogwarts can actually push back against the definitions of the houses, can, can exert an influence on the definition of the houses, and it can do so through its physical space. I am 
unfortunately sadly undereducated when it comes to uh when it comes to matters of design and architecture but even i in my my naive and uncultured state can understand that the space that you inhabit changes the way that you interact with people changes the way that you interact with yourself changes the way that you see the world it's no coincidence i think that that by all accounts the slytherin common room is this this dank little basement is this you know cold and and representative of course of water too this this environment that that inspires a certain amount of of coldness that that also equally one might argue inspires a kind of of ambition whereas the gryffindor common room is this incredibly comfortable and luxurious and somewhat more refined space so i do think that hogwarts can apply a pressure can have an awareness certainly and can inform our understanding of the houses through its physical spaces i don't think it necessarily needs to be able to rearrange the institutions of of the school that occupies its its physical frame in order to to affect change in exactly that way i think that's that's really interesting and certainly we can track the evolution of the spaces within Hogwarts very carefully as we move through the books and see see what we can discover in that regard. So thank you for that, Lexi. Let me see. You guys, are you guys uh, following along with that? Yeah, good. Yes, yes. We're, we're discussing um, ambition here too. Yeah, yeah. Good. Oh, Elizabeth asks, how do all the other wizard kids, purebloods, get to King's Cross? Are magical cars not the norm? I can't see Lucius learning to drive. That's an interesting question. Do they simply apparate into King's Cross? Do they apparate onto Platform 9 and 3 quarters itself? Well, possibly. Possibly. But, hmm... See, I, on the other hand, I don't believe that Lucius Malfoy would ever learn to drive. I don't necessarily have a problem with Lucius Malfoy being driven. I don't necessarily have a problem with, with you know, um, a perfect a, a mirror finish, you know, black Rolls Royce pulling up outside King's Cross Station and disgorging a Malfoy. I don't necessarily have, have, a, have a, a thematic kind of objection to that. I think that could work. But you're absolutely right. Yeah. Wicked Woman says, maybe there's an entrance via Magical London. After all, having the whole student body of Hogwarts running through the wall at Platform 9 and 3 quarters would take a while. Yeah, there may be there may be some kind of means of apparating directly onto the platform, some kind of equivalent of, of flu powder. We might expect at some point one of the Weasleys to say, oh, this is why we do it this way, rather than, you know, rather than simply apparating. But yeah, yeah, good. <laughs> yes elizabeth says it's just one of those things where the the place between magical and muggle worlds meet is confusing and less clear than i would like yes i think this is one of the ways in which rolling struggles um and one of the ways in which harry potter can be troubling as a text because we want to believe that these these places these thresholds between the muggle and magical worlds are clearly defined that they obey consistent rules but the threshold more even than the landscape on the other side is a relic of an older kind of storytelling even if we're, we're happy to credit the literal existence of the hogwarts express that that 
even in the Muggle world, there actually is a set of train tracks that runs north into Scotland that carries the Hogwarts Express. That is that is literally true. That is an observable thing. Even if that is true, even if Platform 9 and 3 quarters does exist somehow within the, the, the broader geography of King's Cross Station, even if all of that were true, not just not just figuratively, not just representatively, not just narratively true, but literally true. Even if that were true, the actual threshold itself, the crossing of the wall into Platform Nine and Three Quarters, is different. There, there is a different, a different sense of of the ways in which these spaces interact. And the same is true, of course, of of Diagon Alley. The same is true of of going through the Leaky Cauldron. You know, I think that. The threshold states between these two worlds are, interestingly, older and more magical than either side, or, you know, either side of that threshold. And that ties us back to ideas that we've discussed with regard to the Forbidden Forest, with regard to, to an older, darker, more powerful kind of magic. There is a way in which our desire to understand literally the intersection of these spaces is always going to be thwarted by their inherently magical nature. Does platform nine and three quarters make sense? Well, no, platform nine and three quarters really doesn't make any kind of sense. And you guys are absolutely right. This, this horde of Hogwarts kids running down the platform, bursting through the wall. Apparently they're all running late because they're school children. That makes a lot of sense. Or worse still, worse still, if you're having trouble imagining going on the Hogwarts Express to get to Hogwarts, imagine them all coming back. The Hogwarts Express pulls into King's Cross Station and 300 kids, 400 kids are immediately disgorged out onto the platform. They emerge from the wall and go about their business and no one is supposed to notice that. There is some elementary charm in place to keep muggles from noticing, which of course, within the fabric of the fiction, there is. It's almost impossible to, to logically and practically reconcile these two spaces. It's magic. And this is a kind of magic which is honestly at odds with the kind of magic that our heroes are taught at Hogwarts. The kind of magic that we discuss in the context of Hogwarts comes down to the right words, the right actions, the right ingredients, the right gestures, the right presence of mind. That's how they are taught. But this older magic that governs the, the intersections of muggle and magical world, that's, that's something very different. Yeah. Um... Yes. <laughs> uh, Claire says, by the same token, even knowing the trains and express, I struggle with the fact when they say Minerva McGonagall's coming from Scotland has to travel to uh, has to travel to London and then travel back to Scotland. Yeah. See, this is another this is another way in which in which the Hogwarts Express is troublesome, right? If you live geographically an hour or two from Hogwarts, are you supposed to travel to London to get on the train to go back effectively home? I mean, literally, yes. Literally, yes, that's how it's supposed to work within within the fiction. But obviously, that is supposed to be more more representative, more more abstract in a way. Certainly, there's no sense that other children arrive at Hogwarts via other means. It seems as though the Hogwarts Express is the only is the only game in town, as far as that's concerned. Which makes sense because, as we discussed when we were talking about the first book, the Hogwarts Express itself, the 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 journey itself, is an extension of that liminal space, is an extension of that that intersection between the real and the mundane. So, in a sense, 
the wall at platform nine and three quarters is only the threshold if we think of platform nine and three quarters as being a part of the magical world, which it isn't necessarily. It may be that this entire blurred experience from the wall at platform nine and three quarters all the way to Hogsmeade itself, that 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 elongated experience is the threshold, which makes sense then that there is perhaps no other way to Hogwarts, though ultimately that will be that will be disproven. Yeah, yeah. Yes, good, good. Kathleen says, I've, o- I've always wondered about the basic knowledge of the wizards that aren't, um, excuse me, I've always wondered about the basic knowledge that wizards aren't being taught at Hogwarts. Do wizards have no concept of math or physics? Do they learn any of that? They have at least a primary education, I guess we can speculate. Um, certainly they have been, uh, they have been in school for six or seven years thus far by the time that they head off to, to Hogwarts. So presumably they've learned something in that time, but Yes, the answer is yes. They never have to read Catcher in the Rye for a high school English class, I promise you. That is just never going to happen. And and for that, that's perhaps one more reason why we want to all go to Hogwarts. Good. All right. Let's um let's push on here. I, I actually have a, a uh this is a 90-minute session rather than the full two-hour session, so I actually have a hard out in 15 minutes. So uh let's push on and and see if we can fit in one more question here. Uh, there is, as ever, more discussion than we have time. Um which is odd because um this last week I was talking on Twitter with a few uh <laughs> a few uh viewers, listeners to the Harry Potter seminar talking about uh, the magical artifacts that we would like from the, the world of Harry Potter in the real world, and I have only ever wanted a time-turner. I don't want a broomstick, I don't want a wand, I don't want any of the magical accoutrements associated with Hogwarts. All I want is a time-turner, and I want a time-turner primarily so that I can talk more about Harry Potter, so that I can run three sessions a day and it would all be fine, Yeah. Let's push on then to the discussion that I mentioned earlier with Dark Wizards. This came from Haley, who writes with regard to um, to Pottermore and the the welcome messages that you get on Pottermore, according to which house you're sorted into. And there's a quote here from the Hufflepuff welcome message. Here it is. The Hufflepuff says... However, it is true that Hufflepuff is a bit lacking in one area. We've produced the fewest dark wizards of any house in this school. Of course, you'd expect Slytherin to churn out evildoers, seeing as they've never heard of fair play and prefer cheating over hard work any day, but even Gryffindor, the house we get on best with, has produced a few dodgy characters. And then the welcome message for Slytherin includes the line, I'm not denying we've produced our share of dark wizards, but so have the other three houses. They just don't like admitting it. So it does seem that within the the fabric of the extended Harry Potter universe that dark wizards can indeed come from any or every school. The thing that I'm perhaps most curious about, though, in that little excerpt from, from the Hufflepuff welcome message, is that they get along best with Gryffindor. And I have always, in my head, assumed that Hufflepuff and Ravenclaw get along best, that as being the two moderate houses they have, in a sense, the most in common because they aren't defined by their rivalry with, you know, another house in the school. So I found that interesting. This is all wildly extra textual, of course, but it is interesting that... that mm, I like the idea that the houses are aware of the phenomenon of dark wizards and are and are able to frame that according to their own experience, are able to kind of process that and and... And almost have a a 
perspective on it that that ties into their sense of themselves you know the idea that well of course slytherin has dark wizards but we all have dark wizards we're the only ones who talk about it there's something so slytherin about that that is so well observed i think and equally the idea that hufflepuff has dark wizards too but the fewest dark wizards these other houses they're terrible are dark wizards they're you know few and far between they're hand-grown and artisanal um there's something about that that I found enormously, uh, enormously interesting. I'm still working on the notion of dark wizards from other other houses and exactly what that would mean. And of course, I did get a lot of correspondence about the virtues that we associate with each house. And I did say when we were having this discussion originally that in a sense, the other three houses manifest as dark wizards when their virtues fail them. That is to say that... A, a Gryffindor dark wizard is going to exhibit cowardice because they, they exhibit an insufficient amount of the virtue primarily associated with their house, which is courage. Whereas dark wizards from Slytherin are in a sense embodying, embodying most perfectly the virtues associated with their house, ruthlessness and ambition, mercilessness. So in a sense, the Dark Wizard of Slytherin is a success, where the Dark the dark Wizard of the other three houses are failures. And that, I think, is untrue. That, I think, is not a complete picture. Because, of course, morality, virtue, is never as simple as all that. Virtue relies upon a certain amount of modest moderation, you know? Yes, it's okay to say that courage is a great thing, but courage taken to excess becomes foolhardiness, becomes willfulness becomes something horribly dangerous. A wizard who was possessed of no fear, of no caution, of no consideration, of no thought of consequence, would be potentially just as harmful as a wizard possessed of ambition and ruthlessness and mercilessness. We can think, too, that that a Hufflepuff dark wizard, for example, may absolutely be deceitful, may be traitorous, may fail to embody the virtues present in their house, but they may also present an excess of those virtues. They may be too loyal, too fixed to a singular ideal. They may be too set in their ways. They may be they may be too focused on the relationships between others. They may be unwilling to compromise. They may be unwilling to display tact or, you know, the softer virtues of integrity. Diplomacy, for example. Forgiveness, even. Forgiveness being a virtue of... of the, the good and stalwart Hufflepuff, that could be taken too far. So I find that a really interesting idea, and, and I like the idea that in moderation we find virtue, whereas in excess or in absence we find vice. That I think is a that I think is a is a theoretically, a, a philosophically complete thought. That is to say that 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 doesn't just strike me as true within the world of Harry Potter, but within life itself. I think a moderation of virtue is is oftentimes going to lead you to greater success and greater happiness and a greater a greater integration with your society and culture than an excess or an absence of those virtues would. Yeah. And obviously it's easier too to walk that path. A dark Hufflepuff, says Pamela, sounds like a chocolate covered eclair. That sounds really good, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you want like the 80% cocoa Hufflepuffs? Those are just, oh, so delicious. Yeah. <laughs> Potato Girl says the scariest villains are the ones that do horrible things but don't feel the need to explain themselves. So you don't get taunting Dracos and speech-delivering Voldemort. That, I think, is a really fair point. That's one of the ways in which Slytherin is, is, is kind of theatrically evil, is that Rowling has connected 
ambition. And, and again, again, I, I want to qualify my use of the word evil there. A Slytherin gone bad is going to be predisposed to a theatrical kind of evil because of the way that ambition is tied to narcissism, you know, because of, of in excess, it isn't enough for Voldemort to win. It isn't enough for Draco to win. They have to be seen to win. It isn't enough for Lucius Malfoy to have Dumbledore removed from the school. He has to show up in person to deliver the message with a swagger and a, a sweep of his cloak and a click of his cane. That's the Slytherin way. A dark Hufflepuff probably wouldn't stand around to give speeches because it's entirely possible that a dark Hufflepuff wouldn't have that 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 sense of his own importance and self-worth wrapped up in in his desire to do whatever you know we're judging as evil there. Yeah. Good. All right. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah, see, it's the badgers. It's the badgers. They're they're the they're the troubling ones. Um and Jolie says, how would a Gryffindor gone bad behave? Would a Gryffindor go bad? Yes, we, we actually get abs absolute, textual, uh, absolute textual proof that a Gryffindor can go bad. Um, and, and it's evidence through cowardice. Yeah, the absence of courage will drive a Gryffindor to do, to do weak things. Um, and I do think that you could also, you could also see, I mean, there's a fine line, isn't there, between a sense of one's own heroism and a sense of one's own ambition? It's one of the interesting ways in which Harry and Tom are not so terribly far apart, and Harry and Draco may not be so terribly far apart. Because in order to be a hero, you have to be exceptional. And if the exceptional part of that equation becomes more important than the actually doing good and helping people part of that equation, then you are on a slippery slope indeed. You are really starting to look like, to look like someone possessed of the Slytherin virtues, you know, to look like someone who is, is willing to sacrifice anything in the name of their own exceptionalism. So that to me is what, what a, that is what a Gryffindor possessed of excessive courage might look like. That's what that kind of dark Gryffindor, the positive dark Gryffindor, if you like, whereas the negative dark Gryffindor would be yeah, it would be a coward. And we're going to see that as we move through the next book. Yeah. Good. Good. All right. Um, let me see how the time is doing. Let's, let's, let's alight on... Oh, I got this great email from, uh, from Paul, who I believe is actually a geneticist. And Paul had some thoughts on the bloodlines that we've been discussing throughout this reading. Paul writes, Pure bloods and presumably many half-bloods would only marry other wizards, and the rest of the magical population who might intermarry with muggles would be comparatively small, which is why magical ability has not spread far. So Paul writes, I assume magic would have to be a dominant allele and non-magic a recessive allele. Then pure bloods would be MM, that is, is, is magical magical, if you like. Half-bloods would be uppercase M, lowercase M. This is much easier to explain in, in, in a written email, of course. And squibs would be lowercase M, lowercase M. Assuming that all muggles are lowercase M, lowercase M, muggle-born witches and wizards would also have some kind of mutation in their genes in order to give them the capital M allele. What do you think of this? I'm, I'm interested in the idea of magical genetics. I'm interested in the idea that that magic, the ability to, to perform magic, might be a dominant trait that we can pass on to our children. But it clearly also has to be a spontaneously occurring trait, some kind of, of mutative trait, too. And that... 
that trips me up a little bit because I don't know with what <laughs> I don't know with what probability the ability to do magic is passed on to one's offspring. Because we've talked a little about squibs, and we know that there are squibs even in the greatest and oldest families, but there's also the suggestion that it's very rare. Simultaneously, though, we have the idea that wizarding families don't actually have that many children, that the wizarding community is still small. There's no reason to believe that we couldn't, even if your chances of, of having, uh, let's say you have a 100% chance, effectively a 100% chance of, of two magic using people having a magic-capable son or daughter. Even if we assume that's 100%, and if we assume that the chances are 50% if you have one wizard and one muggle, it seems to me that, that your population would still grow extremely quickly. If, if I'm trying to puzzle this out, <laughs> and I don't think I'm doing a terribly good job. Here's the thing. I think there are either too few magicians in the world or too few squibs in the world, given our understanding of the kind of the, 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 the organizational hierarchy of the wizarding world. I think there are either too few wizards or there are too few squibs. And I need to continue to puzzle that out. Paul, thank you very much for your email. I, I think I've butchered it by trying to read it out loud on a, on, a, on a live session here. But it is a fascinating discussion nonetheless. And if any of you are skilled in such matters, then by all means get in touch and uh, let me know what you think about it. Um, yes, I want to... Hmm. Uh, Elizabeth says here in the YouTube chat that the Wizarding War has thinned out the herd. True, though... Yeah, I mean, we can speculate. There is a sense in which even if Hogwarts were running at capacity, and there isn't really much of a sense in, in the Harry Potter series that Hogwarts isn't running at capacity, but even if we assume that it's capable of hosting more children than it is, that's still presumably not that many. So we would expect there to be more wizarding schools around the world in order to maintain the kind of population that you would expect. So I'm still having trouble with, with the math and the probability there. But we must push on to our last point. And I think I'm going to throw this out really for, for the good of the, the StoryWonk forum community, because I think this is a really interesting uh, topic. This comes from uh, Nicole, who writes, I wanted to throw in some thoughts on Dumbledore. For me, the character works best when I judge him not by the standards of realism, i.e., is he a good administrator of Hogwarts, but when I think of him in a much more mythic way. For me, Dumbledore is a sort of god allegory. He is there to point Harry, the chosen one, in the right direction, but ultimately Harry must make his own choices and find his own way. Dumbledore is a deity figure can give Harry the tools, sometimes surreptitiously, the mirror of Erised, the invisibility cloak, for example, but Harry must be the one to wield them. And I find this really interesting. I don't necessarily think that we have to invoke religious language in order to accommodate this within like an archetypal structure. I think that what you're describing there, Nicole, is, is Dumbledore performing the role of the mentor, that the mentor oftentimes equips the hero, but has to ultimately empower the hero to perform his or her task, to, to accomplish his or her chosen goal, because the mentor is not himself capable of performing that goal. Um, Dumbledore as mentor is fascinating, but there is, I think, an unavoidable tension between Dumbledore as mentor and Dumbledore within the fiction as the head of Hogwarts. You're absolutely right, Nicole, that... that 
he is more effective when we think about him in terms of the former rather than in terms of the latter, because his role at Hogwarts, as it's described, doesn't seem to give him the flexibility necessary for his willful indulgences. As a representative of a kind of worldly and temporal authority, Dumbledore is obliged to, in part, perpetuate that worldly and temporal authority. He is in charge. Therefore, he has to make sure that the rules that have been put in place by those who are in charge are followed. And most of the frustrations that we encounter with regard to Dumbledore come from his flouting of those rules. This is absolutely the rule. We call it the Forbidden Forest for a reason. Well, obviously Harry can go in there because Harry's special. That is what opens up that that discordant, disassociative space, I think, for most, for, for most, if not, I mean, for many readers, if not most readers. Um, Dumbledore works beautifully, though, if we can set aside that role as an authority figure and look at him as a direct mentor. And this has always been one of the things that has puzzled me about Harry Potter, because we effectively have two characters who in their own way are serving the same kind of role. These characters would be unified, I think, or, or, or would be more effective, perhaps, if they were unified a little bit. I'm talking about Dumbledore on the one hand and Hagrid on the other. You can imagine a Dumbledore figure who is a direct mentor to Harry, who guides and assists and instructs and rewards Harry, if he's living on the edges of the Hogwarts estate in his little hut, you know, off by the Forbidden Forest, where his duties are simple and defined, but not administrative. So the, the choice to separate out Harry's two mentor figures at Hogwarts is a really interesting one. And, and perhaps we can't go too deeply in that uh, until we've had an opportunity to discuss some of these later uh, some of these later books. Kate says, can we talk about how overworked McGonagall is? She teaches, she heads the house, she apparently runs the school as assistant headmaster. Yes, Minerva McGonagall, secret MVP of the entire series. I am not kidding. Yeah. All right, let's, um, it is unfortunately time. I can take just a couple more minutes to, uh, to wrap this thing up, but I'm afraid that I have to be done for now. Guys, this has been an absolute pleasure. It has been an absolute blast. I have had more fun, I think, uh, talking about Chamber of Secrets than I have in any of the previous seminars. This has been far and away my favorite to date, and I'm really looking forward to continuing on with the Harry Potter series, of course, but also looking at other books. I think giving the texts that we love, the stories that we love, this kind of analysis allows us to better understand the stories that bind us, the stories that connect us, the stories that inspire us, the stories that comfort us, and thereby better understand ourselves and our communities. I know that there are friendships forming right now in the YouTube chat that will endure. I know that there are already friendships which have formed over on the StoryWonk forum, over on Twitter, between people who have been unified by a love of this story. A love of the stories that we discuss at, at Storybook. This is why we do what we do, because we think that stories aren't just entertainment. They're not, they're not simple. They're not just there to distract and comfort us. They are avenues that allow us to discuss more fully and more completely what it is to be human. And I think that we really struck on that at the end of the last session, as we were discussing the 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 capital R romantic ideal of 
of, of comfort and of warmth and of community and of camaraderie and this idea that we are human beings and the best thing that we can do is engage with our humanity and the humanity of those around us in the most positive and accommodating and, and celebratory fashion possible. You know, I think that kind of discussion allows us to draw from Harry Potter, from all the books that we've discussed in the seminar series, to draw from that a real a real insight into ourselves, into our friends, our families, our communities, our our, our societies. That is enormously valuable. So I would love to do this all the time. And, and believe me, I'm going to do as many as I can of these things. And I look forward to, to taking part in other conversations with you all too. But thank you for being here with me, for being here live, for listening after the fact, for getting in touch via email over on the StoryWonk forum, via Twitter. This whole thing only works because we're all in this together. And, and I have been privileged to kind of shepherd the discussion forward as we've been discussing the Chamber of Secrets. And I can't wait to talk about the next thing on the subject of which... Let me find a uh, a slide here. We have, of course, there and back again, an exploration of Tolkien's Middle Earth. That is coming up in January. January the 10th was the announced date. It may turn out to be January the 12th. I am now conflicted between the Tuesday evening and the Thursday evening. Stay tuned to storywonk.com. Stay tuned to my Twitter account. I will announce that. I'll announce it early, I promise. So that's one thing that you can look forward to. But if you want to discuss a genuinely great book in, in a great deal of depth in the course of the next few months, might I recommend The Odd Wonk Book Club, which is currently reading A.S. Byatt's Possession. I am going to start this book tomorrow. I'm actually jumping late into this conversation. If you would like to take part, check out the Story Wonk forum or search Twitter for the hashtag OWBC. That is Odd Wonk Book Club. I can't wait to talk about this book. Uh, I've seen some of the discussions that are unfolding around it, and it's really interesting. So I would urge you, if you're if you're looking to delve deep into another text, if you just can't wait, Possession by A.S. Buy it. And finally, I want to recommend another podcast, not one of ours, not one of mine, I should say, but Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is a wonderful, wonderful podcast. As the name implies, it studies the text of Harry Potter for, for moral and philosophical and spiritual insight in a way it reads the text of Harry Potter in the best possible way that we can read any text, looking at the metaphor itself. The hosts, uh, Casper and Vanessa, are genuinely engaging and passionate and, and smart, and they're about to start the Chamber of Secrets any day now, I believe. Um, I think it should be this week. So if you need more rolling in your life, if you want more analysis of Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets in particular, their season on The Philosopher's Stone is already up. You can go and skim through those. They do one episode per chapter. The episodes are are short. They're easy to consume. They're absolutely charming hosts and, and whip smart too. So I absolutely recommend that you check out Harry Potter and the Sacred Text and say hello from me. That, I think, will do it. Guys, it has been an absolute pleasure. The podcast version of this recording will be available soon. As of right now, we're going to delve into The Prisoner of Azkaban next fall, but do stay tuned for more. You can either follow StoryWonk on Twitter or follow me personally on Twitter at PaperBullets, or if Twitter isn't your thing, you can head on over to StoryWonk itself. If you go to StoryWonk.com and you scroll down on the main page, you will see a link there where you can sign up for our newsletter. All of our new seminars, all of our new podcasts, all of our new projects are announced via that newsletter. So go sign up for that and make sure that you never miss a thing. Every Monday morning, I put out a 
a newsletter announcement that contains all the information that, that we've, uh, all, the, all the announcements, I guess, that we have to make, and also a complete breakdown of our schedule for the week. So if you want to know which podcasts we're doing and what the subjects of those podcasts are going to be, sign up for the newsletter. And every Monday morning, you'll get that in your email inbox. And that will be that. That is going to do it, guys. Thank you so much. It has been an absolute pleasure. I cannot wait to talk to you all again. Until then, take care. Thank you.